The DSR Listener Survey is now here. Your voice matters, and we want to hear it. So please take a moment to fill out the survey and help us make our podcasts even better. You can find a link to the survey in the show description below. Thank you. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio. Coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello and welcome to the podcast. It's that time of the week when we turn our attention to intelligence-related matters. I'm David Rothkopf, one of your co-hosts, and I am joined on this, The Spy Show, by... An actual, you know, like a spy. Guy used to be a spy. Now he's like a baseball fan. Mark Polymeropoulos. How are you doing, Mark? I'm doing very well. I'm I'm uh, dialing in from Philadelphia, where, of course, it is sunny outside. Thus, it's always sunny in Philadelphia. But I was here doing some leadership training for the Philadelphia police and uh, had some good uh, good bar hopping last night in South Philly, which is, of course, you know, uh, goes to the, the root of all of I talk about, which is my love of dive bars, like the Vienna N, a t-shirt I'm wearing today, as a matter of fact. Wow. Well, we should talk about, we should talk about a whole podcast to that. We've got somebody who could talk about that on our podcast, one of our friends, Michael Weiss, an investigative journalist who's covered the wars in Syria and Ukraine, as well as Russian espionage and disinformation. Uh, he is the, uh, the editor for The Insider and host of our own foreign office, which released a new episode today. He's got a story that he did with a couple of colleagues a few days ago called Inside an Infamous Russian Spy Unit's First Bombing in NATO. Uh, and it talks about how GRU Unit 29155 um, in 2011 blew up an ammunition depot. But it also talks about why that matters, because what they did afterwards, some of the poisonings and attacks they did uh, and where they have ended up in the Russian government tells you a lot about the Russian government. Um, did you learn all this in a dive bar, Michael? All the best things in life I've learned are in dive bars or on the phone with Mark talking about dive bars. Um, yeah, no, this is a, how can I put this? I, I think what has become kind of apparent in the last few years with the piecing together of all of the operations perpetrated by unit 29155 from the Skripal assassination attempt in Salisbury in 2018 to the attempted poisoning of a Bulgarian arms dealer twice in 2015 uh, in Sofia and in his seaside uh, country house to these mysterious bombings and, and acts of arson that have happened all across Bulgaria, but also in the Czech Republic or Czechia um, in the last 10 years. 29155 is sort of the Rosetta Stone for understanding Putin's, um, I don't know what the term of art would be for this. Maybe Mark can, can help with the, the lexicon. So, you know, we have gray zone conflict, which is kind of this murky terrain of a combination of acts of political warfare, but also a bit of kinetic activity. And then we have, you know, low intensity warfare. But I would say what, what the Russians have done with this um, very dedicated, it's it's what they would call a special tasks unit, uh, which consists of uh, no, not really much more than 40 or so operatives. 
what they've done is is commit acts of state terrorism. I think we can agree on that against Western countries, EU countries, NATO countries, um, all designed to countermand uh, um, the West's ability to arm or to secure vulnerable states that Russia has either gone to war with or is about to go to war with. So the interesting thing about this story is, it, as we say, it's the first documented or known uh, attack by 29155 uh, against a European target. So um, we have the receipts. We have emails from within this unit where literally it was, um, you know, the old story about uh, when Mary and Percy Shelley and Lord Byron repaired to some, I think it was a Swiss mountaintop resort and came up with a contest. They were high on opium the entire time. Who could write the best work of art? And that's how the the, the novel Frankenstein got written. Um, basically, these guys did something similar in Krasnodar, uh, Southwest Russia in 2011, which was who can invent the best remote control detonator for an explosive uh, an IED? And everybody won because the three technicians who were in this sort of safe house in Krasnodar over the course of five days, each invented their own bespoke detonator uh, and came up with technical specifications. Here's how they work. This is the, the the maximum distance. This is how much time you've got after you've armed the device, et cetera, et cetera. And the head or commander of the unit, uh, Andrei Adrianov, who we should talk about a little bit at length down the road in this conversation, um, he said, great, have at it. And lo and behold, these guys descended upon it's kind of an interesting story because it wasn't an attack just against one country. It was sort of an attack or um, an act of sabotage against two. So there's a town uh, in Czechia called uh, Vibritsa. And this is a Czech Ministry of Defense uh, subsidized or, or owned uh, weapons and ammunition storage facility. And a guy called Emilian Gebrev, a Bulgarian arms trader, one of the guys that they poisoned down the line, uh, had purchased 152 millimeter artillery shells, which now everybody is familiar with because that's the thing that Ukraine needs so badly now in, in fighting its defensive war against Russia. Anyway, 152 millimeter artillery shells destined for Georgia, the country, which two years before, again, this is 2011, or sorry, three years before, had just concluded its summer war with Russia and was badly in need of, of a rearming uh, capability. And there weren't many countries at the time, this was in the midst of the Obama reset with Russia, that were willing to go out on a limb and send weapons to Georgia, but this Bulgarian arms trader was was one of them. And so these guys, these operatives from 29155, um, through the use of illegals, meaning uh, Russian spies not working under diplomatic cover, who had gained access and, and were employed at this Czech Ministry of Defense uh, storage facility, smuggled these IEDs, it was like C4 or the equivalent, uh, attached them to the consignments of artillery shells, and then waited and waited for truckloads uh, of, of, you know, or, or truck convoys of, you know, transporting this material from Czechia by car all the way to Bulgaria, uh, bypassing in the midst four major capitals and population centers, uh, Bratislava, Belgrade, Budapest, and Sofia, right? So had these bombs gone off at any point along the way, they could have killed thousands of people, right? Because of, of, of the proximity to urban uh, environments. But anyway, they didn't go off along the way. They reached their destination in Bulgaria and the guys 
pulled the trigger basically. And, and there was this massive explosion. Um, and I think the, the area was denied to rescue workers for several days because of secondary explosions and, and the toxicity in the air and all the rest of it. And at the time, the Bulgarians didn't really know what had happened. They, they found actually um, evidence of sabotage, uh, that this was foul play, but they didn't, they had no idea as to who the perpetrator may have been. And again, this is 2011. So this is before the first invasion, Russian invasion of Ukraine in 2014. Uh, and at a time when, you know, any chatter about Russia being a perfidious um, global player looking to go to war with the West or prepare for an inevitable war with the West was considered hysteria or hyperbole or a Cold War mindset. Um, but it happened. And, and as I say, we have... We have their communication in real time. We have photographs of the detonators they invented. Um, and we have a, a whole bunch of other things. I should mention that, that this investigation was done with uh, star of stage and screen, Christo Grozev, formerly of Bellingcat, and uh, my colleague at the Insider, Roman Dabrahotov, who those two have been responsible for unmasking GRU assassination and sabotage plots going back now several years, including, of course, the Skripal and Gibrev attempted murders. Michael, let me let me jump in one one second, just because uh, I want us I want us to go over what this actually means yeah. um, in terms of you know the you know international relations, statecraft, kind of uh, you know you know what has happened on European soil, kind of Russian malfeasance for so long. But I think a lot of the listeners um, uh, are going to be fascinated if you can give just an idea of what kind of tradecraft did you all use? You know, we were talking about the world of OSINT, open source intelligence, and and some call it commercially sourced intelligence, but when you uh, and your colleagues, you know, obtain these receipts, one of the questions people are going to have is, how did you do that? Um, yeah. uh, almost acting as, you know, or, or what intelligence orga organizations like my old tribe at CIA um, perhaps did or should have been doing. But how have you pulled this off? What's the tradecraft that you use? Well, I'm glad you, you brought up this uh, much misused acronym of OSINT, right? So, you know, there's this misconception, I think, that um, a lot of what we know about what the Russians have got up to, um, including the poisoning of Alexei Navalny, their opposition leader, a host of mysterious and unresolved poisonings of Russian journalists and dissidents going back several years, these sabotage uh, you know, explosions throughout Europe. Figuring it out is not the work of OSINT. You know, OSINT is, um, I look at a video on YouTube, I geolocate where that is, say in Southwest or, or, or southern Ukraine or whatever, and then I can um, identify the specific weapon system used, and you know that that's OSINT. This is, I would say, a combination of classic uh, investigative reporting. So we have sources who go on the record, including yourself, Mark. I mean, you very kindly offered a quote to us. Um, several other Western intelligence agencies, um, active duty and former personnel we shared our findings with and they sort of corroborated or suggested that we had got it right. Um, and then documentary evidence, right, obtained, I can't really go into too many specifics of how we managed to get the emails. I should say it's, there, there were burner email accounts created by members of 29155. Um, and I can say though, that in, in the creation of these burner accounts and the security protocols they put in place, my eight-year-old daughter probably has a better sense of OPSEC than Russian military intelligence. They're, they're not all that um, good at, at, at keeping their secrets safe. Um, but, you know, again, this was an account, one of the email accounts 
more than 10 years old, probably simply forgotten about and never fully deactivated, but it contained this treasure trove of information. Um, you know, active communications with the commander of 29155 Avrianov, attachments. We have found um, compromise on these Russian spies, including evidence of their girlfriends, mistresses, they're all married, right? Um, their use of, of state slash service resources to put themselves up in very comfortable conditions in Moscow. So they're buying apartments for themselves using the funds that were allocated to 29155, buying apartments also, also in Ukraine, by the way. Um, and yeah, I mean, they, they sort of behave with total impunity. All of them have been promoted, right? They started out as colonels or majors or even captains. They've all ascended the ranks. And one of the things we conclude our investigation with is, look, you know, not everything they've done has been super successful, right? Um, Sergei Skripal survived his Novichuk assassination attempt. So did Yulia, his daughter. Emilian Gebrem, they poisoned twice in quick succession. He's still alive, drawing breath and presumably active in the arms trade. Um, but they have done things that are really successful, including the destruction of ammunition depots, uh, weapons warehouses. And also in one instance in Bulgaria, they managed to burn down uh, the police building where all of the forensic evidence from one of their prior sabotage operations had been stored. So they covered their tracks pretty effectively. But even beyond that, they have all ascended the ranks in a manner um, that suggests that they're capable or they have succeeded in doing things that has really pleased Vladimir Putin, right? I mean, the the, the uh, hierarchy typically or classically in the Soviet era, era from the GRU was, you know, the GRU is uh, answerable to the um, uh, the chief of the general staff, uh, and then the defense minister, and then ultimately, you know, the the Kremlin. But two nine one five five kind of bypasses that chain of command, and they answer directly to Putin via Avrianov. And what's interesting is since Yevgeny Prigozhin's abortive coup attempt in June, and then this Fugazi reconciliation deal that he struck with Putin, which of course culminated in, in his plane getting blown out of the sky, you know, a hundred or so miles northwest of, of, of Moscow. Avrianov has inherited all of Prigozhin's file in Africa. So the mining rights, the arms contracts, all of the things that Prigozhin was doing on that continent have now um, been bequeathed <laughs> un, un, unintentionally by Prigozhin to Avrianov. And there is some chatter, although nothing we're prepared to suggest we can c confirm or, uh, you know, establish definitively that Avrianov may have had a hand in Prigozhin's assassination as well. So this is a guy who's done really well for himself. Um, the equivalent in the Soviet period would be uh, Pavel Sudoplatov, who was the in charge of, there was a KGB I think directorate or department of special tasks, it was known. And these guys did very much the same thing, uh, poisoned enemies of the Soviet Union, uh, including Ukrainian nationalists. Most notoriously, this was the department or directorate that plotted the assassination of Leon Trotsky in Mexico. Um, Sudoplatov wrote a memoir uh, in the early 90s, not terribly reliable because he made up a lot of things and he also embellished or exaggerated some of his own exploits, but it gave you a flavor of what it was like to be an operative whose mission in life was to either go to a low-level 
form of warfare against the West, right? Conduct, you know, terrorist plots or, or assassinations or sabotage campaigns on Western soil um, and do so with complete uh, autonomy and, and uh, the authority of, in that case, Joseph Stalin, and now today, in the case of Avrianov, Vladimir Putin. What does it tell you about Putin and his intentions that he operates this way? He does not believe the Cold War ever ended. He does not believe um, that no matter who comes to the White House with grand designs about rapprochement with Moscow or lowering the temperature, you know, the way he sees it is we can go through periods of a lower level form of confrontation against the West and then periods of great confrontation. I mean, right now we're in the midst of one in in this war of conquest in in Ukraine. But again, this shows that even... Long before, um, you know, Mitt Romney, for instance, in, in the 2012 presidential election, described Russia as our number one geopolitical foe, was derided by Barack Obama and a lot of Democrats for making this statement. But lo and behold, you know, at the time of that campaign, operatives assigned by Putin were smuggling themselves into Western countries and blowing stuff up. And by the way, this, this operation in Bulgaria, um, well, one of the operations that this unit was responsible for in about a four-year period from 2011 to 2015 did manage to kill innocent civilians. Uh, employees working at some of these facilities have died in these attacks. So there's a there's a uh, you know a butcher's bill that comes with these uh, with these acts of sabotage, and it shows. Look, he has always believed that his legacy is is inextricable from. Bringing Russia up off its knees, which it was perceived to have been put in this position after the collapse of the Soviet Union, something he's described as one of the greatest geopolitical tragedies of the 20th century. Um, creating this kind of fortress Russia, I would say would be, and I'm speaking very broadly here, would be sort of phase one of his presidential legacy, meaning, you know, resuscitating the economy, making Russia kind of cohesive and mighty within, but also exporting. Um, Russian might to, you know, the, 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 the countries that have traditionally been at odds with Russia, namely the United States, the UK, but also now, um, you know, in the last 20 some years, uh, former Warsaw Pact nations or former Soviet states themselves, such as the Baltics. So I think it, it, it really gets to the heart of his fundamentally confrontational and belligerent nature with respect to the West. There is never going to be peace so long as he is president of Russia. I think that should be clear to, to even skeptics of that conceit going back many years now, given what has transpired in Europe over the past two years. Mark, before we uh, switch the subject to uh, Ukraine, which I, I do want to talk about after the break, uh, perhaps you've got another question on or related to this. Sure. So, so one of the things that that I found was so fascinating um, uh, about the article, and this is, you know, as as Michael said, there were receipts there. This is there, you know, there's there's you know forensic analysis of in, in essence a terrorist attack, but it occurs in 2011, and only now, really post uh, uh, invasion of Ukraine, has has Europe kind of finally gotten smart on this. Um, you know, it's one of the things that, you know, when I was in, in a certain position at the agency is we were trying to push back on the Russians. This is after the 2016 election interference. And so we were working with a lot of European partners 
and having some success on exposing Russian malfeasance. But it was really only after uh, Russian, Russia finally invaded Ukraine that the, the Europeans um, became really serious on this. So, so when this report, when your, when your piece comes out, and we're talking about 2011, I mean, it really, it's, to me, it's a pretty stark reminder of kind of the, the European you know, negligence um, when it came to Russia. And so what does this do right now? So, so your report is out there. There are details in it. You know, are the Bulgarian authorities going to take action? Will others look at this and say, and again, I do, I am not familiar with, with laws, uh, uh, or, you know, statute of limitations in these countries, but can there be things done in terms of prosecutions of, of some of these Russian operatives now, which in fact you actually do name? Yeah. Well, I mean, so interestingly enough, a few years ago, 2020, uh, both Bulgaria and Czechia went public with um, very credible attribution that some of these other attacks, there's been a spate of them, as I mentioned, including, by the way, I at the, the outset, I talked about this facility in, in Czechia, in Vibritsa, the town of Vibritsa. These guys returned to the scene of their original crime. And I think it was 2015. I might be getting the date wrong. But anyway, they blew up the storage facility, which they had used to plant their IEDs on the 152 millimeter shells only to then detonate when they reached Bulgaria. They went back to the, that place and blew up the facility itself. And this killed, I think, two or three uh, Czech uh, civilians. So anyway, the, the Czech government came out, uh, said that this was very likely the work of uh, the Russian state. They expelled Ru uh, Russian quote unquote diplomats um, from the embassies. I mean, the, the, the Russian embassy in Prague, I think, has been hollowed out, um, not just as a result of, of you know, this attack, um, but also the Skripal assassination attempt, which resulted in the largest expulsion of Russian diplomats since at any point uh, uh, since the collapse of the Soviet Union. But anyway, th there has been some state response. Bulgaria did the same thing, expelling diplomats. But what we're waiting to see is, are they going to put um, the known operatives, as you say, we've given their legal names as well as their cover names, are they going to put them on Interpol red notices? They already can't leave Russia, or I mean, they can leave, they can go to like the UAE and probably, you know, Asian countries, but they can't travel in the EU zone um, because all of them have been blown. Their identities are known, they're on, you know, travel ban lists. So it's more of a symbolic thing, but it, it, it goes a long way because, you know, Bulgaria has traditionally been, uh, even though it's a member of NATO and, you know, I mean, it, it has helped with the Ukraine war effort, the political establishment has been very sympathetic to Moscow. Right. Um, this was not seen as a, a pretty stalwart, certainly not by, you know, not to the degree that um, Czechia was. Uh, Milos Zemin, notwithstanding, who was the former Czech president who was kind of like Viktor Orban before Viktor Orban and his sympathy to Putin. So anyway, we're we're waiting to see what the the response is going to be. And, and you know, I should say I shared these findings with the Czech foreign ministry in advance of publication and said, this concerns you and your national security, because as I said, there was, you know, a bomb was planted on your soil and could have gone off and killed people, you know, more than 10 years ago. And I, I was told uh, off the record, um, you know, wow, this is going to sort of, you've ruined our, our afternoon sort of strategy session here, but no responses has come as of yet, which is not to say, though, that there won't be because, you know, one of the interesting things about this kind of investigation is we're not we're not exposing and attributing in real time for things that have happened just five minutes ago. We're going back more than 10 years. 
right? And we're able to do that because with the passage of time, more information, more data has leaked or we have obtained showing bizarre uh, and intriguing travel patterns of members of these units. So what we're doing now in real time is trying to co-locate known operatives from 29155 in the past to incidents, shall we say, um, alleged terror attacks, bombings, you know, unexplained phenomenon, et cetera, et cetera, that in, in the rearview mirror look very, very suspicious. Uh, it's a fascinating story. I encourage everybody to go to the uh, insider and look at it. Um, uh, this is the point where we say thanks to everybody out there who's listening but who is not a member. And this is about as far as you can go because to listen to the bonus part of this content, you've got to be a member. It's easy to be a member. Go to the dsrnetwork.com, click on membership. It costs $5 a month. It's not a big deal, but it is what helps us uh, keep doing what we're doing, more programming like this. Um, and uh, uh, so if you're not a member, become one. And if you uh, are not a member, thanks for joining us thus far, and we'll see you soon. And if you are a member, stand by.